Welcome to the wonderful world of O. Henry. Today I'm going to read the story, The Princess and the Puma. Now, unlike many of the texts that I read on TroubadourMag.com, this is one that doesn't really need a ton of literary analysis of any sort. It's a pretty straightforward story. O. Henry is famous for his twist endings. But more famous and more important for him, I think, is the way in which he uses language. He tries to turn ordinary, everyday events into these epic, extraordinary, exotic, unique endeavors, and he enriches them with his language. And the twist is a great part of that, but it's not the only part. And sometimes, though, his use of language, which he was writing in the early 1900s, 19, uh, very early 1900s, like 1902, and sometimes he uses slang or terms that may not be familiar to us, but for the most part, we can understand what he's saying, even when we can't understand that. What I really love about him, and what I hope you will love about him, is his benevolence, his optimism, the way that he, again, enriches with romantic language and a romantic way of looking at things, sometimes what would normally be banal events, like the way a man and a woman might have met each other on the prairie nooses in the West during the uh, 19th century or the early 1900s on a cattle ranch. And that's what this story is about, The Princess and the Puma. And it's put into the terms of kings and queens in Greek mythology. One of the terms you may not be familiar with is the um, Greek, uh, in Greek mythology, the term he uses is shared the fate of the Danae. Now, this is, just so you know, so you're prepped for this, and you can just listen to the, the, my reading of it without um, being kind of fumbled by that. In Greek mythology, the king of Argos, this is one of the kings of the city-states at that time, he imprisoned his daughter, Danae, in a tower of bronze because the Delphic oracle, so somebody prophesied, that Danae would bear a son that would kill him. So this is very common in ancient Greek mythology. But what happens is Zeus visits the girl, Danae, in the form of a shower of gold, and she gives birth to Perseus, Perseus, who then eventually fulfills the oracle's prophecy by killing her father. And um, so that's, that's the kind of language, and he's putting this, you know, these cattle ranchers in the world, at least linguistically, of Danae, of Zeus, of the king of Argos. And that's, you know, really when it's just a cattle rancher. Now, I think most of the terms will be very simple. You know, again, there's a kind of colloquialisms that O. Henry uses, but a lot of them we're going to know. Uh, there's going to be a few like Colorado Claro wife, which just means that she had a kind of darker complexion. That's about it. So enjoy the story. I'm not going to do an, an analysis afterwards or anything like that. You can go to Troubadour Mag, that's T-R-O-U-B-A-D-O-U-R, mag, M-A-G, dot com, 
And I'll have a post there for the Princess and the Puma that will have some terms that you may not be familiar with, or you could just look them up. But I think even if you don't get all those terms, I try to do enough in the reading that you will be able to understand them. So enjoy this story, and I plan on doing several more of O. Henry's short stories. And if you really like them, please share them and comment, and I'll do even more of them. The Princess and the Puma by O. Henry There had to be a king and queen, of course. The king was a terrible old man who wore six-shooters and spurs and shouted in such a tremendous voice that the rattlers on the prairie would run into their holes under the prickly pear. Before there was a royal family, they called the man Whispering Ben. When he came to own 50,000 acres of land and more cattle than he could count, they called him O'Donnell, the Cattle King. The queen had been a Mexican girl from Laredo. She made a good, mild Colorado Claro wife, and even succeeded in teaching Ben to modify his voice sufficiently while in the house to keep the dishes from being broken. When Ben got to be king, she would sit on the gallery of Espinosa Ranch and weave rush mats. When wealth became so irresistible and oppressive that upholstered chairs and a centered table were brought down from San Antone in the wagons, she bowed her smooth, dark head and shared the fate of the Danae. To avoid lay majesty, you have been presented first to the king and queen. They do not enter the story, which might be called The Chronicle of the Princess, The Happy Thought, and The Lion That Bungled His Job. Ben O'Donnell, the royal Josepha O'Donnell was the surviving daughter, common sense, and the faculty of mother, ruling. She inherited warmth of the combination was one worth going miles to see. Josepha, while riding her pony at a gallop, could put five out of six bullets through a tomato can swinging at the end of a string. She could play for hours with a white kitten she owned, dressing it in all manner of absurd clothes. Scorning a pencil, she could tell you out of her head what 1,545 two-year-olds would bring on the hoof at $8.50 per head. Roughly speaking, the Espinosa Ranch is 40 miles long and 30 broad, but mostly leased land. Josepha, on her pony, had prospected over every mile of it. Every cowpuncher on the range knew her by sight and was a loyal vassal. Ripley Gibbons, foreman of one of the Espinosa outfits, saw her one day and made up his mind to form a royal matrimonial alliance. Presumptuous? No. In those days, in the Nooses country, a man was a man. And, after all, the title of Cattle King does not presuppose blood royal. 
Often, it only signifies that its owner wears the crown and token of his magnificent qualities in the art of cattle stealing. One day, Ripley Givens rode over to the Double Elm Ranch to inquire about a bunch of strayed yearlings. He was late in setting out on his return trip, and it was sundown when he struck the white horse crossing of the nooses. From there to his own camp, it was 16 miles. To the Espinosa Ranch house, it was 12. Givens was tired. He decided to pass the night at the crossing. There was a fine water hole in the riverbed. The banks were thickly covered with great trees, undergrown with brush. Back from the water hole, fifty yards, was a stretch of curly mesquite grass, supper for his horse and bed for himself. Givens staked his horse and spread out his saddle blankets to dry. He sat down with his back against a tree and rolled a cigarette. From somewhere in the dense timber along the river came a sudden, rageful, shivering wail. The pony danced at the end of his rope and blew a whistling snort of comprehending fear. Givens puffed at his cigarette, but he reached leisurely for his pistol belt, which lay on the grass, and twirled the cylinder of his weapon tentatively. A great gar plunged with a loud splash into the waterhole. A little brown rabbit skipped around a bunch of cat claw and sat twitching his whiskers and looking humorously at Givens. The pony went on eating grass. It is well to be reasonably watchful when a Mexican lion sings soprano along the arroyos at sundown. The burden of his song may be that young calves and fat lambs are scarce and that he has a carnivorous desire for your acquaintance. In the grass lay an empty fruit can, cast there by some former sojourner. Givens caught sight of it with a grunt of satisfaction. In his coat pocket, tied behind his saddle, was a handful or two of ground coffee. Black coffee and cigarettes! What ranchero could desire more? In two minutes, he had a little fire going. He started with his can for the waterhole. When within fifteen yards of its edge, he saw, between the bushes, a side-saddled pony with down-dropped reins, cropped grass a little distance to his left. Just rising from her hands and knees on the brink of the waterhole was Josepha O'Donnell. She had been drinking water, and she brushed the sand from the palms of her hands. Ten yards away, to her right, half concealed by a clump of sequesta, Given saw the crouching form of the Mexican lion. His Amber eyeballs glared hungrily. Six feet from them was the tip of the tail, stretched straight like a pointer's. His hind quarters rocked with the motion of the cat tribe, preliminary to leaping. Givens did what he could. His six-shooter was thirty-five yards away, lying on the grass. He gave a loud yell and dashed between the lion and the princess. The Ruckus, as Givens called it afterwards, was brief and somewhat confused. 
When he arrived on the line of attack, he saw a dim streak in the air and heard a couple of faint cracks. Then a hundred pounds of Mexican lion plumped down upon his head and flattened him with a heavy jar to the ground. He remembered calling out, Let up now, no fair gouging. And then he crawled from under the lion like a worm, with his mouth full of grass and dirt, and a big lump on the back of his head where it had struck the root of a water elm. The lion lay motionless. Givens, feeling aggrieved and suspicious of fowls, shook his fist at the lion and shouted, I'll wrestle you again for twenty. And then he got back to himself. Josepha was standing in her tracks, quietly reloading her silver-mounted thirty-eight. It had not been a difficult shot. The lion's head made an easier mark than a tomato can swinging at the end of a string. There was a provoking, teasing, maddening smile upon her mouth and in her dark eyes. The would-be rescuing knight felt the fire of his fiasco burn down to his soul. Here had been his chance, the chance that he had dreamed of, and Momus, and not Cupid, had presided over it. The satyrs in the wood were, no doubt, holding their sides in hilarious, silent laughter. There had been something like vaudeville, say, Signor Givens and his funny knockabout act with the stuffed lion. Is that you, Mr. Givens? said Josepha in her deliberate saccharine contralto. You nearly spoilt my shot when you yelled. Did you hurt your head when you fell? Oh, no, said Givens quietly. That didn't hurt. He stooped ignominiously and dragged his best Stenson hat from under the beast. It was crushed and wrinkled to a fine comedy effect. Then he knelt down and softly stroked the fierce, open-jawed head of the dead lion. Poor old Bill, he exclaimed mournfully. What's that? asked Josepha sharply. Well, of course you didn't know, Miss Josepha, said Givens with an air of one allowing magnanimity to triumph over grief. Nobody can blame you. I tried to save him, but I couldn't let you know in time. Save who? Why, Bill. I've been looking for him all day. You see, he's been our camp pet for two years. Poor old fellow. He wouldn't have hurt a cottontail rabbit. It'll break the boys all up when they hear about it. But you couldn't tell, of course, that Bill was just trying to play with you. Josepha's black eyes burned steadily upon him. Ripley Givens met the test successfully. He stood rumpling the yellow-brown curls on his head pensively. In his eyes were regret, not unmingled with a gentle reproach. His smooth features were set to a pattern of indisputable sorrow. Josepha wavered. What was your pet doing here? She asked, making a last stand. There's no camp near the White Horse Crossing. The old rascal ran away from camp yesterday, answered Givens. It's a wonder the coyotes didn't scare him to death. You see, Jim Webster, our horse wrangler, brought a little terrier pup into camp last week. The pup made life miserable for Bill. He used to chase him around and chew his hind legs for hours at a time. Every night when bedtime came, Bill would sneak under one of the boys' blankets and sleep to keep the pup 
from finding him. I reckon he must have been worried pretty desperate, or he wouldn't have run away. He was always afraid to get out of sight of camp. Josepha looked at the body of the fierce animal. Givens gently patted one of the formidable paws that could have killed a yearling calf with one blow. Slowly, a red flush widened upon the dark olive face of the girl. Was it the signal of shame of the true sportsman who has brought down ignoble quarry? Her eyes grew softer, and the lowered lids drove away all their bright mockery. I'm very sorry, she said humbly, but he looked so big and jumped so high that old Bill was hungry, interrupted Givens in a quick defense of the deceased. We always make him jump for his supper in camp. He would lie down and roll over for a piece of meat. When he saw you, he thought he was going to get something to eat from you. Suddenly, Josepha's eyes opened wide. I might have shot you, she exclaimed. You ran right in between. You risked your life to save your pet. That was fine, Mr. Givens. I like a man who is kind to animals. Yes, there was even admiration in her gaze now. After all, there was a hero rising out of the ruins of the anticlimax. The look on Givens's face would have secured him a high position in the SPCA. I always loved him, said he. Horses, dogs, Mexican lions, cows, alligators. I hate alligators, instantly demurred Josepha. Crawly, muddy things. Did I say alligators? said Givens. I meant antelopes, of course. Josepha's conscience drove her to make further amends. She held out her hand penitently. There was a bright, unshed drop in each of her eyes. Please forgive me, Mr. Givens, won't you? I'm only a girl, you know, and I was frightened at first. I'm very, very sorry I shot Bill. You don't know how ashamed I feel. I wouldn't have done it for anything. Givens took the proffered hand. He held it for a time while he allowed the generosity of his nature to overcome his grief at the loss of Bill. At last, it was clear that he had forgiven her. Please don't speak of it any more, Miss Josepha. Twas enough to frighten any young lady the way Bill looked. I'll explain it all right to the boys. Are you really sure you don't hate me? Josepha came closer to him impulsively. Her eyes were sweet, oh, sweet, and pleading with gracious penitence. I would hate anyone who would kill my kitten, and how daring and kind of you to risk being shot when you tried to save him. How very few men would have done that. Victory rested from defeat. Vaudeville turned into drama. Bravo, Ripley Givens. It was now twilight. Of course, Miss Josepha could not be allowed to ride on to the ranch house alone. Givens resaddled his pony in spite of that animal's reproachful glances and rode with her. Side by side, they galloped across the smooth grass, the princess and the man who was kind to animals. The prairie odors of fruitful earth and delicate bloom were thick and sweet around them. Coyotes yelping over there on the hill. No fear. And yet... Josepha rode closer. A little hand 
seemed to grope. Givens found it with his own. The ponies kept an even gait. The hands lingered together, and the owner of one exclaimed, I never was frightened before, but just think how terrible it would be to meet a really wild lion. Poor Bill, I'm so glad you came with me. O'Donnell was sitting on the ranch gallery. Hello, Rip, he shouted. That you? He rode in with me, said Josepha. I lost my way and was late. Much obliged, called the cattle king. Stop over, Rip, and ride to camp in the morning. But Givens would not. He would push on to camp. There was a bunch of steers to start off on the trail at daybreak. He said good night and trotted away. An hour later, when the lights were out, Josepha, in her night robe, came to her door and called to the king in his own room across the brick-paved hallway. Say, Pop, you know that old Mexican lion they called the Gotch-Eared Devil? You know, the one that killed Gonzalez, Mr. Martin's sheep herder, and about fifty calves on the Salado Range? Well, I settled his hash this afternoon over at the White Horse Crossing. Put two balls in his head with my thirty-eight while he was on the jump. I knew him by the slice gone from his left ear that old Gonzales cut off with his machete. You couldn't have made a better shot yourself, Daddy. Bully for you, thundered Whispering Ben from the darkness of the royal chamber.